Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out why 42 really isn't the answer to everything. Our fact checks cover it all. Um, Okay, so long-time listeners of this podcast know that I have a I've long had a bee in my bonnet, um, metaphorically speaking, because I no longer own a bonnet, um, about public sector unions. And my standard joke is, you know, that while I understand why private sector unions came into existence in the wake of harsh working conditions, you know, where was the great motor vehicles department ceiling collapse of 1973 that justified public sector unions? And um, I've been ranting about this for so long, I figured I'd actually have someone who knows what he's talking about come on, and that's Professor DeSalvo. Um, he is a Manhattan Institute uh, senior fellow, and he's a professor of political science at uh, City College of New York. And um, I'm a big fan of his. His stuff for national affairs um, has been extremely useful to me over the years, as has his book, Government Against Itself. Dan, uh, thanks very much for coming on. And the very first question I have for you is just a historical one. Um, what was the what was the 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 initial incident that made what something that FDR opposed and lots of people lots of people on the left opposed all of a sudden happen in the sixties and seventies? What was the rationalization or the event that caused public sector unions to become a thing? Well, there isn't a single focusing event, as you could say, of like the uh, triangle uh, shirtwaist fire in the, in right. the private sector. So what you have is a really slow process. But as you noted, public and private sector unions in the United States come into being really two generations apart. Um, the private sector really gets going in the 30s under FDR. Um, with the Wagner Act, it's not really until the 60s and 70s and leading almost into the early 80s that the state governments enact collective bargaining and union security provisions. And that's, so that's a slow process over the course of you know 20 years that that's happening. And why is that happening? Well, in part, it's happening because organized labor in the wake of the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 and the passage of right-to-work statutes in the southern states really didn't have anywhere else to go to expand. So private sector organized labor in terms of organizing is looking for, you know, new pastures. Uh, the A second feature was, you could say, the enactment of civil service statutes in the states had weakened what were the old 
party machines, especially the Democratic Party machines. So politicians are now looking for a new source of campaign support uh, and organizational muscle. So that really makes a a kind of marriage of convenience, if you could say, um, between politicians who are looking for new sources of support uh, now that the machines are collapsing and the unions who are looking for uh, new sources of members. And that makes a kind of marriage of pushing into uh, the public sector over the course of this, you could say, 20-year period. Yeah, I mean, so that's an interesting point I hadn't actually focused on, is that the, 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 the decline of machine politics created a need to sort of replace one activist force with, at, with another, and that's what the sort of the public sector unions become. Um, but... So let's talk about the public sector union and public sector unions and the Democratic Party. If you could just sort of lay out for listeners, you know, the extent to which uh, public sector unions or government unions, whatever you want to call them, really are kind of the shock troops of the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I used a stat recently in a column about how typically in any at any given Democratic convention, ten percent of the delegates are members of teachers' unions which is like a thousand percent overrepresentation of their place in the population in general. But just sort of lay it out. How, what is the intersection between the Democratic Party and public sector unions? And out of curiosity, is there any intersection between the public sector unions and the Republican Party, just out of equal time? Sure. So you're right. So starting, you could say that the Democratic Party and public sector unions in general are very closely intertwined. And there's a lot of back and forth between the two of them of people with union experience going over, as you say, and working as uh, as party operatives um, or even themselves running for office. And those connections also come in the form of campaign contributions, boots on the ground campaigning, endorsements of political candidates. So public sector unions are heavily involved in politics. And you mentioned the teachers union as being particularly prominent. Uh, That stems from the fact that uh, elementary and secondary uh, school employees, teachers in particular, are the largest category of state and local employees. I mean, far outstripping all other types. So there's just a lot of, there's a lot of teachers and there's a lot of people who are in K-12 education and so that's a, just a big organizational structure right there that feeds into the Democratic Party. I'll give you one anecdote just as a kind of low-level thing. If you mm-hmm. think about um, the New York City Teachers Union, the UFT, uh, it rents office space to the New York State Democratic Party in the <laughs> same building in Lower Manhattan. So if there's any evidence that things are really closely related here, that just anecdotal evidence should show it. Um, so the donations, let's say, can train contributions is one metric to show these close relationships. And the teachers unions give over 90% of their campaign contributions to Democratic Party candidates, and they're some of the biggest uh, donors um, to the Democratic Party and its candidates. On the other side, the Republicans have a clearly a much weaker relationship with organized labor and with public sector unions in general. However, when it comes to especially police unions, um, the Republicans uh, have had a longstanding relationship uh, with police unions for uh, lots of reasons. So you could look back as an example, uh, Act 10 in Wisconsin, Governor Scott Walker exempted the provisions of uh, the initial part of his uh, 
public sector labor reform from applying to police and fire unions in part mm. because of their political connections to uh to the republican party whereas in nearby ohio uh the then governor who in, and republicans in the legislature act, enacted a similar provision didn't exempt police and fire and their law was eventually overturned in a referendum um, it showed maybe the divide and conquer strategy had yeah. Uh, something to say for it. So out of curiosity, because I've been thinking through this a lot and I've been trying to figure out where I come down. I basically don't think public sector unions should exist. And people say, well, what about police and fire unions? And that's the place where I get the squishiest. And it's not because uh, they're more Republican. It's because part of my understanding of what justifies the existence of a labor union has to do with actual physical safety. Right. I mean, like the original coal mining unions or the garment factory unions. My grandmother was a seamstress, in, you know, right down there. Um, uh, that kind of, you know, the, the sort of just basic safe working conditions and not just safe working conditions, but even broader stuff about, you know, humane hours and all that kind of stuff. And at least for cops, firemen, and sanitation workers, those are areas where I get kind of squishy because you can see the case that there's a there's there's a better argument for some kind of collective bargaining, but maybe I'm just being a big softy or looking for reasons to make a distinction where there isn't one. I mean, first of all, I guess for the sake of the listeners, we should you should answer just the basic question: What do you think if you had the power to do it? What do you think we should do about public sector unions? I mean, should they be abolished? Should there be a right to work law? I mean, what where is your sweet spot for a policy compromise. And also, if you could talk about this distinction about cops versus, you know, Department of Motor Vehicle Workers or whatever. Yeah, well, there's a, a lot in what you say, so we we'll have, have to do a lot of unpacking. I think the first thing Unpack away. that, that <laughs> listeners um, should bear in mind is what facilitates the creation of unions in the public sector to start with. Really, it's that government state governments pass what's typically called the collective bargaining statute. And that means that, um, speaking broadly, management of government organizations are then required if a union is formed, and we can talk about the steps by which that happens, if a union forms to negotiate with the representatives of that union over three items, pay, benefits, and work rules. And work rules are the items about you could say work conditions or uh, jobs. And we can talk about more specifically on the police because that's particularly important, as you noted, for police. So it's the it's those statutes that, in a sense, create government unions as we know them today. So really, they're an interest group that's created by government itself. Government's incentive, the employer side incentive, is that well, we want someone to bargain with that's going to set a contract that's going to determine all of those things and it's going to help our us manage our workforce that's you could say the employer side motivation um to do this now clearly you know the effect usually or many people have thought but there's still debate about this over public sector unions is that the whole point also from the union side is we're going to increase pay by using our collective bargaining power we're going to enhance our benefits workers are going to get a better deal we're going to get in a sense, for those work rules, here's the big trick, more job protections, meaning it's going to be much harder to discipline, transfer, fire, take any adverse personnel action against uh, anyone who's a union member. 
and in a sense weaken management's rights against workers. So that that's sort of the the baseline of you know what's being done now. The problems or the critiques that people have of this process are really twofold. One is that it drives up the cost of government service beyond what really needs to be paid, and that is a burden for taxpayers and siphons off money from where else it could uh, be spent perhaps more wisely. And the second critique is it introduces a kind of sclerosis and bureaucratic uh, inertia um, because management's hands are so constricted. you know, perhaps a example would help illuminate this issue that, for example, the corrections officers in California negotiated a provision of their contract, which said that uh, prison wardens could not determine who should be uh, monitoring different cell blocks. And that (laughs) those would be decided, in fact, by seniority on a sign-up sheet. Um, so you might say, look, this is a particularly bad part of the prison with some rough guys in it. We need some younger strapping guys to police that section of the prison. We want to assign them. That's management view. No, we've got to take the older guys who want maybe hazard pay or something right. else because of this provision. So that's you could say that's an idea of restricting uh, management rights. So those are the sort of two fundamental uh, criticisms that one might make of public sector unions. And we could talk a little bit about uh, more about what might be done to change these things. But go yeah, ahead. well, I guess we'll, we can get to the reform part in a bit. But I mean, I remember it may have been something you wrote in City Journal a, way, a, way, a while back about there was that case about the fire chief who said in an interview, he was in the Bay Area, that if he saw a kid drowning out in the Bay, um, he wouldn't rescue him if he was on duty. <laughs> um, because of the work rules that were involved, you know, and, uh, you know, that's when you're sort of through the looking glass on a lot of this stuff. And on the, on the, on the prison guard thing, I've written a bit about that because for years I, I used to mock a lot of the left wing arguments of what Jesse Jackson used to call the prison industrial complex. And there was a lot of this sort of half-baked Marxist stuff about how, you know, corporate America was using the lumpen proletariat in the prison system as excess labor or all sorts of weird stuff. And it turns out that in a, in a sense, there really is a prison industrial complex because, but it's the prison guards because they were the ones who killed Schwarzenegger's effort to, you know, fix three strikes and you're out and all that stuff. And they kind of have a, they have a stranglehold over the prison system, or at least they used to, I haven't followed it recently in California. But I remember in your book, you wrote about how basically California is, in a sense, run by, um, you know, these different sort of ar- aristocratic clerises of public sector unions. Is is that still the case in California? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about this in some ways in light of, of what's happened or happening or what hasn't happened or happened to public sector unions in the wake of the Janus decision a few years ago, mm-hmm. which is a major Supreme Court case. Yeah, what did you uh, explain the Janus decision? Just, you know. The Janus decision, um, basic on free speech grounds, the uh, 5-4 majority ruled that agency fees in uh public sector union environment are unconstitutional because they're a form of compelled speech. What's an agency fee, sometimes on the union side, called a fair share fee? Under uh, 22 state laws, if you were in a unionized environment um, and you worked in a 
area in, in, in government where there was a union, you could be forced to pay either union dues, but if you didn't become a union member, you still had to pay the union almost, in most cases, the same amount, um, or usually some percentage, uh, or if you wanted to get out of some, the political part of that percentage, it was a complex opt-out procedure. So clearly unions were, in a sense, coercing all members of a bargaining unit to pay them, whether you were a member or not. And the court ruled that you couldn't do that because for the people who didn't want to be a member, that now you're compaying compelling them to right. to speak. So that's obviously going to have in, in major implications for union finances and perhaps union membership over the longer term. Um, so as of right now, to circle back to California, you know, things have not changed enormously on the ground in California. It doesn't US. seem like it. Yeah. No. So, and that's, you know, more the case you could say uh, across the country, things have changed a little bit, but it hasn't you moved the needle on what we might call public union power. Um, so I, so I want to get to the reform stuff in a second, but um, one of the other points that I'm sort of always been interested in, and I know it's true to a large extent in New York, and I've read some academic stuff on this, but for all the grief that the GOP is getting, and it deserves a lot of it in terms of playing games with ballot access and voting, and yeah, that's a subject for another podcast. I just you know, want to make sure that people understand I'm pretty critical of what the GOP is doing on voting stuff these days um, or, or on election stuff. But at the same time, the in municipal and local elections, some of the the most anti-democratic in the sense that if Republicans were doing it, people would call it anti-democratic actions are by groups like teachers unions who do not want to have large turnouts for primaries because if it's a very low turnout, then the teachers union, which has um, a large group by some measures, but small in terms of the aggregate electorate, if it's a very low turnout and they turn out all their members, they can pick school board members and politicians that are to their liking. And if you win the primary, you win basically win the general in places like New York. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the, the public sector unions actually work from within the system to, you know, affect, to, to make sure they get, they get the management that they want. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, the first point that you touched on, which is so fundamental and different about public sector unions than their private sector cousins, is that they can, in a sense, exercise influence on both sides of the bargaining table by partly you know, contributing to and assisting the election of the people who are then going to, in effect, sit across the negotiating table from them. And you you put your finger on a, a point that's not well known or understood or, or even well studied in academia, which is that in the cities and state elections, you could say the the Republicans, as you know, have their voter suppression techniques, um, but the Democrats have their version, which is called off-cycle elections. Um, <laughs> and no one talks about it in this way, and, but clearly... Uh, all of the arguments for holding elections off cycle start to sound a lot like the arguments Republicans use to justify making ballot access more difficult. Um, so, you know, New York City's mayoral elections are off cycle, all these things. And when you have an election that's off cycle, the size of the electorate overall shrinks. And the proportion then of activist groups, most led, you could say, by public sector unions, increases. Um, and so there's fairly compelling scholarly elements 
uh, evidence on this, um, especially a book done by a woman, a professor, Sarah Ainsia, uh, out at Cal Berkeley, that shows if you have off-cycle elections, unions are going to be a bigger portion of the electorate. Result, you're going to end up paying a lot more for your police, fire, uh, and other local services. And, and I mean, an intermediate step between those two things, politicians are going to be paying much more attention to those constituencies, which is a totally normal incentive. If, if, if you know that 15% of the electorate is going to be this group, you're going to pay a lot more attention to it than you would if it was 1.5% of the electorate by just simple, basic political math. Right. You're going to find, you know, if you're representing the median voter and the median voter is strongly influenced by this group because the right. size of the electorate is so small, I think you're, those representational effects are exactly that middle step. And there you can see this even if you, you know, for those of us who follow, you know, New York City elections, um, you have this big primary going on now, lots and lots of candidates. So who's going to replace Bill de Blasio? And what's a major headline? A major headline is that um, a quasi-public sector union, 1199 SEIU, has Mm -hmm. uh, endorsed Maya Wiley. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in a sense, they kind of picked de Blasio out of the large field and made him mayor. Can they do it again? Um, And in a sense, that's very telling that that's how the electoral process for picking New York City's Democratic candidate for mayor, which then will fairly obviously be elected mayor, given um, the distribution of, uh, of partisan identifiers in the city. Um, and that's a sort of very telling thing of which people just sort of say, oh, that's sort of natural or normal. <laughs> but, right. um, but there's nothing natural or normal about it. It's the effect of this off-cycle election, interest group power, and so on. Um, so... I- so like one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by this is I'm a weird amateur student of this um, concept of the new class. And there are probably 30 different scholars of new class from Schumpeter to the ones who were lo- like uh, ones who were looking at Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And um, and but one of the things that unites a lot of them is just sort of this idea that um, up until fairly recently in human history, the idea of a class, an actual whole group of people that could vote on their class interests that didn't actually produce things, that, you know, basically moved paper around. Um, and so like the the Irving Crystal, Joseph Schumpeter crowd, they have notions of the new class that have much more to do with intellectuals and manipulators of images and ideas. And then there are others who talk about simply, like in the old Soviet Union, the new class new class theory for the old Soviet Union was bureaucrats who manipulated, you know, the, the, the mechanisms of the party and by extension, the government and all that. The only reason I bring this up is one, I'm absurdly interested in it, but two, um, it seems to me like this would be such a fascinating topic for more left of center scholarship. You know, I've heard you describe the public sector unions and the private sector unions as cousins. Um, elsewhere, I've seen you see, you know, like they're different species. Um, and I, I tend to think they're more like different species. They have, they have, they look similar, like two kinds of shark, but they actually have very different evolutions. Regardless, um, how come it's basically you and Terry Moe and a handful of people, at least on the sort of center right side of things, 
Um, but I haven't seen a lot of this on the left. Why isn't, you know, given how huge labor history is in academic circles, um, why isn't this a subject of more interest than, than it seems to me as a somewhat informed but basically amateur observer of all this? Yeah, I think, in fact, there's been a big uptick um, in uh, scholarship in the ac academy on public sector unions. Um, and this is taking place especially in political science. And you could say the first movers here were some of the more critical voices of public sector unions, you, you know, myself, Terry Mo, who you mentioned, uh, and others. But I think there's been a bit of a response and there's more interest on the part of a number of, especially younger scholars who are certainly more on the a left uh, on this issue and more champions of labor unions um, that have advocated for this. Um, so I see, in fact, it's become a little bit of a, a hot topic, you could say. Yeah. And, um, so I would expect there would be more. I think on this new class stuff, you know, there's a really interesting connection between those two versions of the new class that you mentioned. You could say the kind of Soviet apparatchik version and the right. Irving Crystal uh, Schumpeter intellectual version. And you see this in the connection, you could say, between organized labor and the universities in particular, mm -hmm. which is the proliferation, you could say, of these schools of labor studies, which are kind of training activists to be um, to be involved in the labor movement, but also giving them a platform in universities to hold conferences and educate people and sort of connect it up to the social justice messaging. So there are lots of these different kinds of institutions all over the place um, in, you know, universities all around. And certainly in, in City University of New York, where I work, we have one. There's, you know, one at Berkeley, one at lots and lots of places. Um, so that sort of connects the two strains. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a whole, there, there are a whole bunch of Venn diagrams that overlap between different versions of of the different new class theories at some point I, I, I want to do a sort of a field guide to all of these things, but cause there's like literally dozens of people who are very interested in this topic. So moving on to the reform side of, of all of this, um, I mean, when you're talking about the academic interest and how it's being sparked, which makes me happy to hear, um, it always seemed to me that given how, parts of the activist left are very eager for police reform. We're seeing that right now with like the George Floyd bill and the protests and all that. Um, you would think that there would be room for some, like if, if, if you come at it from the left and you don't like police unions and qualified immunity and all of those kinds of things, it's very difficult to pull on those intellectual and political threads without you questioning, you know, tenure for, you know, alcoholic incompetent teachers in public schools <laughs> and vice versa. If you have, as I, as from the direction I come to it from like going back to the rubber room stuff and, and all of that, if you look at the way teachers unions are and you want to have an intellectually coherent and consistent position, you got to have to take into account what you think about police and fire unions. You'd think that there would be room politically and intellectually for some kind of maybe not, you know, Abolition is not going to happen because the political interests aren't there, but some kind of like good faith reform. What, you know, like Rahm Emanuel, for example, does not love public sector unions. And is there a, is there a movement afoot among 
good government types in the Democratic Party to do something about this? Or is it all going to have to be sort of Scott Walker, you know, uh, attacks from the right kind of approach that are going to create reforms? I, I think it's a ter- it's a terrific question. You know, I think starting with you could say the work rules portion, and that th- end up converting as they get negotiated over time and into all these contracts into lots and lots of job protections, making it very difficult to fire, transfer, discipline, and that occurs obviously, as you know, in the and that's been in the headlines for the police, right? Potentially right. protecting bad cops that then put citizens at risk until you know, something tragic happens. Or, but the, the same phenomenon exists in the public schools of protecting bad teachers. There was an old joke that, you know, Randy Weingarten would defend a dead body in the classroom. Now, <laughs> that wasn't because Randy Weingarten's not smart or she's, you know, ill-intentioned or something like that. It's because contractually and legally, she's bound to defend all members of the unit equally. So they have to do that, um, both for legal reasons, but also because if they don't do that, they'd be subject to an electoral challenge inside the union, right? Police union leaders are in the same incentive uh, circle. Um, So it's very hard. And this has come out, you know, if you listen to the rhetoric of the New York PBA leader, Pat Pat Lynch, he says, well, if you start attacking us, you're just going to be attacking the other public sector unions. So mm-hmm. the labor movement's been very divided over the police union question because they recognize that really these arguments are easily transposable to the other other unions. Um, now, where m- might reform come from? Um, I think it would, you know, the Democratic Party has been divided, as you know, Rahm Emanuel, you could say Governor Andrew Cuomo's had his run-ins with uh, the public sector unions. Um, so some California <laughs> governors have you know, occasionally made signs or indications. But it's very hard for me to see how the sort of centrist or moderate Democrats are much of a, a force, even at the state levels, leaving Washington aside. It, the good government ideas just don't, that doesn't seem to be a major concern at the moment. You know, you think back to the 90s and the kind of Clinton-Gore reinventing government I don't know where that's gone, but it's not yeah. on the radar today. It's more just spend more money on the issues is sort of the more simplistic outlook. So it, it strikes me as that element of the Democratic Party is really embattled uh, at the moment. And then the question, um, can more reform come from the right? Um you could imagine, you know, it would be very hard and difficult for, say, moderate Republicans in stronger union states, Larry Hogan in, in Maryland or Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, to really push on some of these issues, in part because in those states, the unions are very powerful, very vocal, uh, very active. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's really at a, something of an impasse to how things might move forward. So I, mean, I, I remember during the the last time Scott Walker got reelected, um, there was a lot of interesting data about how you could really start to see the private sector unions, particularly the the minor, the miners and you know steel workers types um, in the Iron Range. There was all that stuff really diverging from the public sector unions, and this is one of these places where you have that weird overlap of new class theory where the public sector unions are much more bought into 
you know, uh, the climate change arguments without us getting into the issue of climate change, but sort of the, the sort of zero emissions, don't like heavy smokestack industries and all of that kind of thing. Um, is it that the, the private sector unions, the heavy industry unions have shrunk so much as a share of the, as a block of the democratic party that they can't be the, 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 a countervailing force. Cause you know, the one thing that private sector unions have going for them, which makes me respect them a little bit more than public sector unions is that they at least understand you need a private sector and, you know, killing the Keystone pipeline can't make teamsters happy. It can't make, you know, um, uh, you know, a lot of blue collar workers happy. And it seems to me that that's the cultural divide is that the private sector unions much more are much more likely to be culturally on the side of the GOP than, and have their economic interests reinforced by their cultural side of the GOP um, than the public sector unions. Is that a split that you see forming or is that just sort of vestigial wishful thinking on my part? I think it's a, a split that's forming, but you know, the other issue here is that the private sector unions have been on such a downward decline, right? Public sector union membership is now a majority of all uh, members of organized labor. And you have to remember that's relative to the size, which is to say, you know, back of the napkin terms, uh, public sector unions are about a fifth of the labor force or public sector workers are a fifth of the labor force and private sector are four fifths. But the size of the those that are unionized in the private sector is, you know, very right. small, rel again, in relative terms. So you can see across all the issues you mentioned, whether that's Keystone, whether that's Amazon coming to New York City, um, all of these issues, uh, housing, construction in San Francisco, uh, the private sector unions are, again, in favor of growth and development. And the public sector um, is just not going to be their ally on these things. They just don't have the economic incentives to do that. You could also see these splits over immigration, the private sector unions going all the way back to Samuel Gompers, uh, you know, 100 years ago, has notably been skeptical um, of large scale mass immigration because it presumably would depress wages. That was always organized right. labor's position. But clearly, organized labor's official position of the AFL-CIO is now pro-immigration, you could say. Mm -hmm. um, and why did that chip? switch happened? Well, it happened after John Sweeney, who came out of SEIU, which is basically a half public sector uh, or federation, um, became president and the public sector became to exercise more influence. And that really shifted the labor movement's uh, public position on on immigration. So on all these policy areas, growth, housing and development in cities, uh, attracting businesses, Keystone, um, you really see this big split and that's perhaps why Trump was able to at least make some gestures, you could say, mm -hmm. um, to the private sector side early in his administration. It didn't amount to much, but it, it showed there was some cultural affinity or something like that. So, I mean, you said that there's not the economic sort of incentive for public sector unions to be in favor of the stuff that the private sector unions want. And I, I, I know what you mean. And, and all that, but at a macro level, and this gets us to sort of one of the last things we haven't even mentioned, you could make the case, you know, like you could make the case that growth is actually very much in the interest of public sector unions rightly understood because someone's got to pay for their fricking pensions. And the more economic growth you get, the more you get, you know, you can hit that discount rate that is embedded in the 
um, a lot of these union contracts. Um, and yet, I mean, let's put it another way. You say, and you say that the, the the public sector unions don't see their economic interests helped by supporting private sector unions that want growth and development and all of that. Why not? I mean, what what harm does more economic growth cause public sector unions? Presumably, more tax revenue means more government workers, more union members. Um, I mean, what what is what is the downside other than the environmental ideological stuff of being in favor of of more growth? Well, it's not so much that the, 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 the downside here is not that their immediate interests are going to be impacted, right? So it's more a question of they don't, they're not strongly incentivized to, to favor it, right? They're, in a sense, their bread and butter is not directly on the table there, right? It's somewhere further down in the supply chain. Um, and it's easy to ignore that as a result. And then the second thing is you have to see public sector unions, especially in the big cities, as part of the larger, you could say, liberal interest group ecology. Now, people don't talk about this, but you know, lots of groups like the NAACP, for example, get funding from the teachers unions. Um, they all have members on each other's boards, and there's a kind of interlocking set of organizations, right? So the teachers unions are opposed to charter schools. Not surprisingly, the NAACP is opposed to charter schools, despite the preferences uh, in many surveys demonstrated of black parents. Um, so in that sense, you can see things like we're opposed to development because many of our allies are also opposed to development. And we see and we don't see our immediate interests as threatened. Right. And even on something like the pensions, which is a great example here, you know, you can see lots, I see this with my academic colleagues who are, you know, on the New York State pension plan for public university professors, you know, are, you know, saying, well, I wish the stock market wouldn't be doing so good in the pandemic. And I was like, wait a minute, why would you wish for that? You, you want, if it was doing poorly, the pension would be doing poorly and the state would be having to contribute more to that. It's, but um, that, those, there's too many steps in the, the argument to see yeah, yeah. those interests. Um, so there's a little bit of that. Um, and it, at the end of the day, on the pension side, the, uh, the idea is, well, these are contractually guaranteed. So regardless of economic performance, we're going to get paid. Uh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is a point you've made in your writing, um, and it, it kind of bolsters the new class point, right? Which is that, you know, since the rest of humanity in America, for the most part, has no longer has defined benefit pensions, it's very hard for uh, normal people to understand how different the pension system is um, and how un- sort of untethered from the market and, 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 and tradition, you know, I shouldn't say traditional because it used to be everybody sort of had sort of these defined benefit kind of pensions and not everybody, but lots of people who had pensions had these kinds of pensions, but it's now sort of, private sector people are from Venus and public sector people are from Mars because they don't understand the different incentive structures. So can you just sort of talk through like what the, what the, as a rule of thumb back of the envelope, what the pension situation is for public sector um, workers and how unfunded a liability is it? Yeah, these are, these are very complex discussions. And as you say, there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and people even speak of pension envy, right? <laughs> Two people in the same, same uh, you could say, union family, one's in the public, one's in the private, and they have envy of the 
the deal that's being offered. Um, you know, there's lots even more to say about, you know, even the recent aid package, which is in a sense, uh, making public of any of these private multi-employer plans by bailing them out. (laughs) So that's a separate discussion. But the issue here is that for many of the pensions, again, these are contractually guaranteed. Um, The employee pays in and the employer pays into a pension fund. Those funds are then invested in the stock market and they're going to provide the worker then an annuity-like stream of income upon their retirement until their death. And they're a defined benefit because you're saying, here's how much you're going to get. And it's a formula based on how many years you worked and what your final average salary is over a series of years. Um, so, you know, that can be typical, like teacher's pension today it could easily be $75,000 as the back of the napkin, which at mm-hmm. retirement at 65, uh, the, the pension plan is going to pay that out every single year until they're, uh, mm-hmm. until they're deceased. Whereas all the risk then is then on the part of the employer, meaning on the part of the government, meaning if the funds don't perform well in the stock market, in the markets, who's going to make that up? Current taxpayers, right? So all the risk is on the uh, employer side, not on the, the worker side. And that's so different from the defined contributions plans, 401k style plans that prevail in the private sector, where all the risk is on the individual side. You know, mm-hmm. you may have to defer your retirement for a couple of years if when you hit 65, you say, well, this, we're in a recession and the markets are doing terrible. My uh, my savings has actually decreased. So if I want to have the kind of retirement I want, I'm going to have to wait a few years. So this these plans however are in many states and many cities terribly underfunded and underfunded just means that they haven't set aside enough assets and those assets haven't performed as well enough in the markets to pay the promises they've made to all of their current and and retired employees which means that it's a form of government debt which means at some point somebody is some taxpayers are going to be on the hook for financing um yeah, so t- you mentioned it, and you know this is one of these episodes of the Remnant where we're studiously avoiding current events. But um, the the standard Republican talking point, which I'm somewhat sympathetic to, is that this is basically the big chunks of this latest package are just basically bailouts for city and state governments that have accrued a vast amount of red ink. Um, how true is that? And, um, and to what extent does the, I mean, to what extent is the public sector union part of this really explain the amount of debt that a lot of these localities are in? Well, you can say, the truth is, and no one knows exactly since these are things that have accumulated over such long periods, but if you, look at you know my home state of new york it is a very it's one of the highest tax states in the union it um it spends a a lot its public sector salaries are very high um new york doesn't have as much pension debt going for complicated reasons with we don't need to talk about but in that sense you could say that the just the amounts are um that are on the table that are it's used to spending um are just huge. And that's been something that's been a, this long-term ratchet effect, you could say, of multiple rounds of collective bargaining and benefit sweeteners of, for 
pensions by lobbying the legislature, such that you end up with this just very, very expensive public sector that even the slightest downturn can have really huge negative budget consequences that creates a really precarious public finance. So in that sense, you know, the I agree with the critiques, as you do, that a lot of this budget package uh, or I don't know what you can't call it a stimulus bill because it's not really stimulus. <laughs> Whatever it is, this aid package is really meant as a kind of blue, does a lot of blue state bailout stuff um, that probably could be spent more wisely. Okay, I know you're pressed for time, but um, so this blue state thing I think is kind of fascinating to me, and I want to. I have this half baked theory. I try to talk to Michael Strain from AI about this in the last episode or a recent episode, the $15 minimum wage. I know it was yanked. Um, my understanding is that part of the reason why they want 15, the the $15, why there's an incentive structure for constantly raising the minimum wage. Part of it, we can take the idealistic and, 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 and good faith arguments and put them to one side. I'm not saying that they don't exist. Um, but there's also this ratchet effect pr- pressure from union contracts that the, if you raise the minimum wage, there is a cascading um, increase at different levels of pay scale because they're pegged to the minimum wage, either officially or unofficially. And it feels to me that that's partly a blue state play at the national level for reasons I can't quite articulate, but it feels like it's 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 a way to sort of keep flight of employees to or t- taxpayers to non-minimum wage states. If you make it blanket across the country, the benefits for blue, st- it benefits blue states that were heading towards 15 or at 15 already. Does that make sense? I mean, wh- what is your view of what is the role the public sector unions play or unions in general with this, with the minimum wage? I think, you know, most narrowly on their immediate incentives and interest is just, as you say, as many union contracts are Uh, tied to what the wage floor is and take their bearings from that point. So if you raise that, that has a cascade effect inside their contract. So you could say that's good for their members in our narrow self-interest. We want that. Now, maybe people who are thinking, uh, union leaders and others who are thinking around the curve, you know, we want to raise the wage floor to try to offset out-migration. Now, out-migration from, you could say, the blue states, especially um, yeah, in the north where it's cold to faster growing, warmer climes of Florida and Texas and Arizona. Um, we want to offset that. So we need to raise labor costs there as well. And there may be some thinking along those lines. I haven't read any good evidence to show that, that that's an issue. I think more of the problem, you could say, is the middle class squeeze that's occurring across all of the blue states, especially in the in the snow belt and i think about this in my local uh, situation in, in new york you have obviously very wealthy people in new york they can afford to stay even have afford to have their taxes increased uh you have many people at the lower end of the wage scale poor people who can't afford to move uh, or rooted for family and other reasons and aren't going to move um, and then you have a segment of the middle class that's belongs to public and private sector labor in New York State, which has very high private sector unionization rates as well, that's carved out niches, whether that's, you know, steel workers or teachers to sustain a middle class lifestyle. The question is, can a middle class private sector lifestyle be sustained on the back of very high taxes 
very high regulation. And in fact, it turns out that even with all this government spending, they look at New York, relatively poor public services. Um, so it's not just the high taxes, it's the bad services too. And then you look elsewhere and say, well, I could get uh, comparable services at a lower cost, lower taxes. So that it's that middle class squeeze that I think is uh, for the private sector middle class that's really been driving so much of the out migration. Whether a $15 minimum wage is sufficient to stem that tide strikes me as probably a thin read, but I don't yeah. know enough quite about how that would work. Yeah, it just feels like, you know, I try to take a step back and think of sort of raw sort of quasi-Marxian analysis. And so like, you know, the salt deduction stuff by the Republicans was a shot at blue states. And and there's just something about the $15 minimum wage thing that feels like a shot at red states, but I'm not quite sure. All right. So last question, because I know, again, you're pressed for time. Um, so you're an am- amiable, nice guy. You're, you work at a public university. Um, you live in New York. I have learned from my brief forays into even modest criticism of public sector unions that I am, that immediately makes me history's greatest monster. And, um, if you, and, and it is amazing to me how emotional all of this stuff gets so very, very, very quickly. And, you know, the other day I had a tweet where I said, imagine if the grocery worker unions had the same clout as the teachers unions, we'd all starve. And immediately I was, you know, denounced. And of course, you don't care about starving grocery workers. And what about the triangle shirtwaist? Blah, blah, blah. How much do people hate you? I mean, how much, like, how much do you get into trouble with all of this stuff? Because it just seems like having grown up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and having one, and I had a brother who ran for city council and said he was against tenure for K through six teachers. Because there's no such real, there's no such thing as like academic freedom when you're in K through six, and the vitriol that he received was just staggering. I mean, how do you how, how do your colleagues treat you? Are you a pariah? Or are you just a happy warrior? And a you know, well, I, I certainly try to model myself after Al Smith as as the happy warrior, um, uh-huh. and, and and that can certainly. Uh, uh, a little bit of collegiality, especially these days in academia, could surprisingly go a long way. Um, and I've, I've been very blessed in my own department with some civic-minded uh, colleagues. So I, at least close to home, I've been well protected. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that these issues for many people are so deeply ideological. Um, and this enormous passion and sense of you know, justice, often, often the, the more passionate, the less informed by facts. But um, in that sense, people, they touch on, you could say, especially for people on the left, two, you know, really important, two, they've really touched two important buttons, which is one, their belief in the ec- efficacy of government. So if you're attacking public sector unions and saying they're making it less effective or cost more, that's that's really attacking something that's deeply valuable to them. And then people's kind of conception or in their minds of what is a worker and the working class. And if you're attacking unions, then you must be saying something negative about the working class. I mean, they don't really, and they probably are still working with a kind of much older conception of a union member as a person in a hard hat and steel toed boots. And, you know, that does a tough and dirty job like a coal miner, not, you know, um, 
a middle-aged woman with a master's degree, you know, who works in a Westchester school and makes $115,000 a year, which is about the average teacher's salary in Westchester today. Um, that's not the, what they have in mind. But that notion that you're attacking workers or something like that is very powerful. And that just stirs up hugely passionate uh, emotions. Um, <laughs> so I've encountered this. And then, of course, you end up, if, when you really bore into this, you get in with, you know, the union activists themselves. And, you know, I've had many de- debates and these issues because of this, like, can just easily be demagogued. And, yeah. and, and you can, you know, you're, kind of nuanced points that you're trying to say, well, you know, we can marginally improve things and reduce taxes and be good for the middle class. Uh, you know, that's becomes quickly a dialogue of the deaf. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I wish you luck in all of it. And, um, uh, and you know, I just, I, I, I'm just concerned for your safety is all. Um, <laughs> well, so. Me too. I mean, it was one thing when I was just criticizing the teachers, but now that I had to criticize the police too on principled grounds, I'm really in trouble. <laughs> All right. So, uh, uh, Dan DeSalvo, thank you so much for coming on The Remnant. Really appreciate it and um, hope to have you back sometime. Uh, it was my pleasure, John. Okay. So, uh, uh, we were a little pressed for time. There was some other stuff I would have loved to get into, but that just gives me an excuse for wanting to get Dan. Um, back here because there's all sorts of more um pension stuff about why one day soon the living may envy the dead because of the um apocalyptic nature of our debt crisis stemming from the pensions i read somewhere someone told me a while ago that the roads in chicago that originally the toll system was set up to pay for the roads but now that the roads have all been paid for the toll system is still exists to the extent it does to pay for the pensions of the toll takers. Um, and this is basically why Rome fell. Um, but we don't need to get into all the weeds about all that. Regardless, uh, uh, thanks again to Dan DeSalvo. Thank you for listening. And um, things are going to get a little complicated next week with my, my travels. And we haven't logged in as many uh, evergreens as we had hoped. But uh, uh, so there may be a substitute host for the dispatch um, or some other solution that has yet to have revealed itself. Regardless, please become a paid member and please go to the dispatch.com for all the good stuff. And with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. It's just a podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.